0: I want to say a word of thanks to all those folks who came to the workday yesterday and helped us in painting and cleaning and all that sort of stuff. If perchance you had been at the workday yesterday and were working anywhere around the parsonage, it's possible you could have asked to use the restroom. And if you had asked to use the restroom, we would have sent you into our restroom. And, and while you're in the restroom, you may have noticed that in the shower, I have some really nice high end, hair care products for men and you might look at those products and say hmm you you might form some opinions you might say oh it's interesting the pastor spends that much money on hair care products or you might say hmm the pastor obviously cares a great deal about how his hair looks or. Well, who knows what kind of judgments you might have reached if you had walked into our restroom and noticed the hair care products that were uh, in the shower. But unless you talked to me, you wouldn't really understand what was happening. You really wouldn't understand that I have those Very expensive, high-end hair care products, because last year at the Cornerstone auction, I went around and did opening bids on a number of things, just to sort of get the ball rolling on some of those things. And on this particular package, I wrote down $10, because that was the minimum bid, and no one else bid on it. And so I got it and it was shampoo and conditioner, a $35 gift card to a particular barber shop, and a, a, an overnight bag, and there were like eight things in there. The, the, the value of the package was like $85. So when you know that story, then you say, really the pastor's cheap. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on what set of facts you use to reach your judgment. And if you had used the first set of facts, you would have had not enough information to make a more accurate assessment. But if you used the second set of facts, you probably got it right. When I was in high school, we all assumed And for those of you who are younger than I who can't quite figure out when I was in high school, it was the 70s. Okay, when I was in high school, we all assumed that with progress and education, that the issues of race and segregation would be non-existent by the time we were adults. We dreamed along with Martin Luther King, Jr., but we didn't count on some things. We had partial information. And I think there's a lot of things that come together that have caused those dreams not to come to fruition. But I think most importantly, we didn't count on the social media revolution, which would actually create more distance between us than creates more communication. Because of the distance between people, that social media creates, it makes it easier for people to make poor judgments based on partial information. And it also makes it easier for people to make hateful statements because they don't have to look into the eyes of their brothers and sisters when they make them. The less we know about one another, the easier it is to believe ridiculous statements about one another the easier it is to rush to judgment, the easier it is to lose the sense of the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. The fact that the issues of prejudice, slavery, and injustice have been with us so long is no excuse to tolerate their existence. Human trafficking today, even in our own community here in Connecticut, ought to make our stomachs curdle. Having finished an extended segment, Preaching as Paul, there's one book I really didn't touch during that time. And I'm going to make the attempt to read the whole book to you this morning. You say, Isn't that going to take a little while? Well, not really. It's a really short book. If you look um, just past the pastoral letters, past, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, and just before the book of Hebrews, there's a little book letter sandwiched in there, just 25 verses long. Philemon. This is what the 25 verses of Philemon have to say. It begins with the word Paul, which identifies Paul as the one who is writing the letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy's with him, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave but more than a slave a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the lord so if you consider me your partner welcome him as you would welcome me if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything charge that to my account I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul and Timothy write to Philemon and to two others and to the church that is at their house. We don't know exactly which church this is, no one's sure, but the greeting of the letter matters because on the face of it, it's a personal letter to one person, and yet the greeting tells us that it is intended to be read by many more than just one person. Make make no mistake, this letter is designed so that pastors and leaders will weigh in on the decision that Philemon has to make and so that the whole church will understand what is at stake in Paul's letter. This is a letter between colleagues and partners. This is a letter between unequal colleagues and partners, in the sense that one party is in debt to the other, having received a gift beyond price from the other, and that is Philemon's salvation comes through Paul. And so Onesimus The slave of Philemon is somehow in that equation. There's a desire here to do the right thing, both on the part of Paul and on behalf of Onesimus. But the distance between Paul and his recipients causes problems. Paul can't really know what Philemon is thinking. Paul doesn't know exactly what the situation between Philemon and Onesimus really is. And this distance, this space, makes this kind of a letter necessary for Paul to communicate his heart, but also to make his understanding clear to Philemon. We can't really read the intentions. And part of the problem is Paul doesn't have the opportunity to explain himself If Philemon doesn't understand what Paul's asking, there's too much distance between them. And so he over-communicates, as it were, in order to make sure everything is clear between them. And there's another problem. This request that Paul is making flies against all social norms. So it would be easy to be misunderstood here. Slavery is an accepted part of the social structure of that day. No one, including most slaves, thought it possible for things to be any different. Paul couldn't assume that Philemon would understand what or why Paul was asking what he was, since the request flies in the face of convention. This is confusing for the first readers 2,000 years ago, but it shouldn't be as confusing for us all of us who know slavery and oppression are wrong. Paul doesn't want to be thought of as manipulative, but he also wants to make it really clear that this request ought not to be refused. I mean, he states in the letter, I could just issue orders so you understand Paul's status here, but that would create other problems, and it certainly would not be conducting the ministry after the manner of Christ, who never coerces, but always invites. Paul has previously mentioned that he's given up secret and shameful ways of making his points. No manipulation, no arm twisting, Paul says. And yet if you read the letter, you sort of feel like there's a little bit of manipulation here and a little bit of arm twisting because the stakes are pretty high in this letter. And so, so why is it? Why is he willing to go so close to what he normally refuses to do? And, and though we can't understand everything that's being said in this short letter, there are some things that are really clear. This is the most surprising of all, I think, is why did this letter get saved? I mean, this is like a private correspondence. It's sort of like saving a grocery list. It's just, it's one request between two people. All the rest of Paul's letters are written to large churches, to be circulated among the churches, have grand theological statements included. This doesn't have any of this. This is just a favor between two people. And yet the church thought it was very, very important to save this private letter. So it is significant because of that. It may be saved, because of what Ignatius wrote 50 years later after this happened. Ignatius is an early church father. He writes a a letter when he's uh, near Ephesus and he talks about this amazing bishop in Ephesus whose name is Onesimus. And the reason we think that it's likely that this Onesimus the bishop was Onesimus the slave, is because both in Ignatius' writings and in this letter, both people use a pun to talk about the guy. Because Onesimus means useful servant. But he wasn't useful. He wasn't useless, useful to Philemon, Philemon. He became useful to Paul. And so Paul says, he who was once useless has become useful. And Ignatius, 50 years later, uses the same kind of pun to talk about the bishop of Ephesus, who is Onesimus, the most useful of all. In any event, the letter is saved, and Paul is making an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. At some point, Onesimus was a slave, but we don't know the story. Did he run away from Ephesus and try to hide in the crowd in Rome, somehow come in contact with Paul. Maybe he was sent by Philemon to serve Paul initially. Maybe he was in Rome to hide from a previous master, or maybe all of the above are true. Regardless of what his past was, his future is he has become a brother in Christ. Paul wants to keep him, because he's so valuable to him. And he's become a dear friend and brother to Paul. But Paul, in the setting, doesn't have the right to keep him because he's not Paul's slave and he has no right to a slave. Paul wants him freed as a co-equal brother in Christ but he doesn't have the right to do that. Paul also doesn't know if there is an indebtedness issue, you notice from the letter that Paul doesn't offer to buy Onesimus' freedom. He's not going to pay a slave's price. But if some action of Onesimus caused an injury or an indebtedness to his previous owner, Philemon, Paul will settle that. If that's an objection of any way in granting Paul's request. Did Onesimus run away because of some impropriety or something stolen? To just forgive that out of hand might seem unjust. You get the idea here in this letter that Paul knows that he's imposing, but he's gonna do it anyway but he's also counting on Philemon's character and on Philemon's track record. So so what is Paul doing? How is he using his authority? He's essentially saying this man who was once your slave and an unuseful one at that has become completely new. Something has changed. The unuseful one has become useful, especially to Paul. He would love to keep him, but that's imposing and presuming too much. And so I offer back to you, Philemon, that which was once useless as a useful partner, more than a partner, as a co-equal brother in Christ. And Paul says, maybe that's why all this happened. Maybe it all happened so that Philemon, you could be reunited with Onesimus, not as master and slave, but as equal brothers in Christ. That's the kind of change Jesus wants to make in all of our lives. We were once slaves to sin. Sin is a cruel master. Serving sin leads to deepening levels of despair and brokenness and bondage. But in Galatians 5, we read, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit any longer to the yoke of slavery. Don't let any sinful action get a hold of you. Anything that diminishes your love, your ability to love others must be discarded. You have to exercise your freedom in Christ. For Philemon, he's going to have to stand against all social custom and admit a former slave into the intimate fellowship that exists within his church. In fact, what he's being asked to do by Paul opens him to some degree of public vulnerability. There will be a social cost to pay for bringing Onesimus into the full intimacy of his family. Paul knows that, and Paul says, pay it. This is one of the very unique things about the early church. All the dividing barriers that existed between people are coming down. Class divisions are falling away. Gender divisions are falling away. Wealth and social divisions are falling away. There is only one identity that means anything at all anymore, and that is Are you in Christ? The only thing that matters. Nothing else is significant. Are you Christian? If you are, we are family. The Holy Spirit that is in me and the Holy Spirit that is in you binds us together more tightly than any blood relationship possibly could. And we are one in Christ. What was just beginning in Paul's day What was a a suggesting with a little bit of leverage applied in Paul's day is absolutely required of us today. There is no room for prejudice of any kind in the kingdom of God. There are no second-class citizens. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are colorblind people when it comes to making judgments about race in fact, there are no human divisions that are honored in the kingdom of God. Are we all the same? No. We are pieces of the grand mosaic that God has created. We celebrate our diversity and treat one another with respect and value and love. I think, I think there's a principle for decision-making that is embedded in this letter that matters. I mean, consider the options. Paul could just keep Onesimus, because Onesimus's whereabouts are likely unknown to Philemon anyway. Hiding in Rome would have been easy, and no one would have been any the wiser if the slave had just stayed in Rome. Why do anything at all? Except the brothers and sisters in Rome would know, and Paul would know, and Onesimus would know, and hiding from problems never solves any of them. Paul could have justified keeping an Onesimus because he needed the assistance. I mean, it was, it was easy for Paul to find ways to justify doing what appealed to him. I mean, we don't have any trouble doing that kind of thing. If, if it's convenient for us and appeals to us, we just assume that's God's will regardless of what other principles may be violated in it, because we tend to be a little self-absorbed about things. But think about what Paul has endured up to this point. I mean, all those difficulties and trials and beatings and stonings, don't you think he's entitled to a little bit of compensation in his old age and in prison? Doesn't he deserve someone who could go fetch food for him and make his life in prison a little more comfortable? i mean i might have think well i might have decided that having onesimus here for me was just god's will god helping me out of a difficult time but whenever i decide what god's will is based on what is best for me or on the basis of what i want i am making selfish decisions that doesn't mean that sometimes god doesn't give us what we want It means that when there are other concerns, morally or ethically, when the needs of others are a part of the conversation, we don't get to choose our current course of action based on what we want for ourselves. That's selfishness. Paul could have justified not sending Onesimus back just because it was too dangerous to send him back. I mean, being as far from Philemon as Paul was, Paul had no way of guaranteeing Onesimus' safety. He could be sending Onesimus back to his death. If Onesimus really was a runaway slave, death could be a sentence lawfully imposed in that day. So it doesn't look like right decisions are always easy decisions, or safe decisions, or without cost. But Paul's decision does several things that matter it creates a pathway for new life for Onesimus if Paul can convince Philemon to do the right thing Onesimus's life is transformed forever Paul's decision also creates an opportunity for gracious action on the part of Philemon if Paul just issues orders Philemon just has to comply if Paul issues an invitation it's an opportunity for Philemon to be gracious. There is a little bit of arm twisting involved in this, but I really believe that the arm twisting that Paul does is exercised in the defense of the weak, because Onesimus has no legal standing in this culture. And if we're ever going to do any arm twisting or manipulation, it ought to be in the defense of the weak. This decision that Paul makes also is done in the face of the roman church so they know what paul's asking and it also sends a message to the whole church of asia minor where ephesus is and so it's not just paul asking philemon it's paul asking philemon and the leaders at his church and the church body there this is a public decision so that it can be copied in other situations I guess I need to offer a side note to this letter because racial tensions are so high in our world today. I've discovered over the course of my life that prejudices are everywhere. We tend to think of prejudices primarily in terms of skin color or gender, but but there really are many, many more. And I think that most of them are examples of some persons trying to feel better about themselves by insulting or dismissing others, or trying to gain power over others by demeaning them. I mean, the examples of real prejudice in the world are are large. Um, Those who speak continental Portuguese look down on people who speak Brazilian Portuguese. People from Georgia look down on people from Alabama. White-collar workers look down on blue-collar workers. Northerners look down on southerners. East coasters look down on west coasters. Old people look down at young people, and young people look down at old people. Polish jokes are not particularly funny to me, but they were very funny in my hometown. I I don't say these things to belittle the very real threat that prejudices are to people I only mention them because prejudices are a part of the fallen nature of humanity. They are sinful, they are demonic, but they are common. Stereotyping, profiling, hiring biases, or just simple barriers to friendship are experienced by every kind of minority that exists. Some minorities feel the injustices more than others, depending on the degree of discrimination. Sometimes, almost all the time in my life, I have lived as a majority. Occasionally, rarely, I have been a minority. And in those short times, I've discovered just a few things, things I would have never known before if I had never stepped into the role of being a minority at all. This is what I've learned. When living as a part of the majority, and look at me, white male, so we know that privilege accrues here. It is impossible for me to know how those in the minority feel about the way life works, about the privileges the majority enjoy or about the nature of the oppression that minorities routinely experience. I can't know it. I can can think I know it. I can pretend that I know it. I don't. Members of the majority can read books about prejudice or learn about it on television. But we know nothing at all. And we know less than nothing until we've experienced similar prejudice and had no way to escape it. It's a whole different thing if you can place yourself in a situation of being a minority to try to understand, but then you have the ability to step out of it. But when you can't step out of it, all of the calculus changes. It's completely different. And as long as I'm a part of any majority, I must humbly listen to those in the minority in order to learn how others feel and experience life. I need them to tell me what I cannot know on my own and what I may likely never experience. Honestly, I do not know or understand the fear that many women feel if forced to walk anywhere alone at night. I can't know that. I can recognize it when someone tells me about it, but I can't completely understand it. I cannot understand the fear that mothers of black sons must have when their children hit 16 and learn to drive. It's a real thing, but I can't understand it. It's important that I know that I can't understand it. I cannot know what it's like to live in a country where I do not speak the primary language well. We, if, if you haven't actually been in those shoes, you can't understand them. But this I know, in the kingdom of God, we have no part in any discriminatory practices. And because we are already living lives that are made possible by God's grace, by definition, we ought to be continually humble. That puts us in a position of listening to those who are experiencing the pain of injustice and prejudice. We should be the best, most humble listeners on the planet because listening humbly matters. We embrace those who are in pain. That is always the kingdom of God way because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of justice, justice for everyone tempered by the mercy of Christ. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, I have a dream that one day in the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. This should not be a dream just for Georgia, or for the United States of America. This should be the reality of every place that the kingdom of God exists. If we are less than this, it is to that same extent that we are living as less than citizens of the kingdom of God with integrity. That's the message of filaments that we are called to humbly listen and exercise on behalf of the weak. I don't know that I know how to say more than that. And there are others who can speak much more eloquently and from better experience about this issue. But it needs, because of who we are in this day and age, a commitment is required from us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God with credibility and integrity so that we listen humbly and by the grace of the Holy Spirit remove any sense of pride or prejudice from our lives. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are grateful for your word which continues to teach us We ask for your forgiveness if we have participated in ways steeped in prejudice or discrimination, and ask by the presence of your spirit that we would love one another with the love of Christ, that we would recognize each of us as fearfully and wonderfully made, and we would praise you for your goodness in creation and for your grace in our daily lives. Help us, Lord, to truly link arms with one another, that together we can live as your children with joy and integrity. We pray this in your name. And now may the peace of Christ guard your hearts as you do all you can by the gift of the Spirit to glorify the one God we serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.